This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop skills with the language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link PurelyFunctional.tv. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this episode. First, I want to let everyone know about CodeMesh. CodeMesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November, with the tutorial days on the 2nd of November. CodeMesh brings together a wide range of alternative technologies and programming languages, and the wonderful, crazy people who use them to solve real-world problems in the software industry. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, creator of the Quicksort algorithm, co-designer of Haskell, John Hughes, the co-inventors of Erlang, Joe Armstrong and Robert Verning, Don Syme, creator of F-Sharp, co-inventor of Julia, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zabucki, designer of Elm, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. Second, Chicago Erlang is also coming up on the 10th of October. The format for this year is a bit special. Instead of a conference, it will run as a one-day Erlang workshop in the heart of Chicago. They will have two tracks, Essentials, led by past guest Martin Logan, as well as Fred Herbert, and an IoT app build-out track, led by seasoned web-scale engineers Brian Troutwine and Garrett Smith. The goal of Chicago Erlang is to keep it interesting and super affordable. Early bird registration is $49, and the full price is $69. In addition to Chicago Erlang, City Code will be taking place on the 9th of October, the day before Chicago Erlang. City Code Chicago is a one-day immersive technology conference for programmers to spark creativity and innovation that invites brilliant speakers from Chicago and around the country to share important ideas and let those flame into deeper exchange with you involved in discussion. This year, City Code Chicago will be at the world-famous Second City Theater. This small venue, designed for improv theater, brings speaker and audience together. There's one track, so everyone shares and contributes to the same experience. Join them Friday, October 9th, 2015, to feed and invigorate your inner geek. Lastly, 
ElixirConf is coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of October, with a day of workshops the day before on the 1st of October in Austin, Texas. You can still register for the two-day, two-track conference, or add the optional one day of training on October 1st. But hurry, some training classes are filling up. Breakfast, lunch, and Wi-Fi are provided at the conference. Over 28 speakers and 200 attendees will be at the conference, and keynote speakers include past guests Jose Valim and Jessica Kerr. Don't miss this opportunity. To find out more and to register, visit www.elixirconf.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Dr. Jim Fries. Jim, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Oh, hi, everybody. Well, I'm the organizer for Elixir Conference and been doing Ruby for about 15 years and been doing Elixir for about almost two years now. So, yeah, you've been pretty early adopter in communities. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you along with your involvement in the conferences. And I got to meet you and go down to Lone Star Ruby Comp when it was Lone Star Ruby 5. And was impressed with the conference that you threw there because that was my first foray into seeing what the Ruby community was like. But I also know that you've been doing ElixirConf pretty early on. And I kind of wanted to get an idea of your kind of early adopter mindset that you've pictured. Because my understanding is you were pretty early on in the Ruby community. I think you've heard you say you're probably one of the first, if not the first person to be a full-time Ruby developer getting paid for it. and then you're picking up Elixir pretty early on. So what is this apparent knack you have of figuring out communities and getting involved early and making an investment in it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know. You could call it partly luck. I, I don't know. If I give any kind of answer, it'd probably seem arrogant, but I, I kind of have a, a knack for looking through all the cruft and, and seeing the gems that are there. So... When I was back in the days, looking and when I found Ruby, I was we were writing some scripting for the uh, semiconductor industry, and we needed we needed a tool and script that would work for us, that was efficient. And I think my boss recommended C plus plus, and about killed over thinking about that's not real really good scripting language to write code in a quick manner, especially code that we don't really need to run fast. We just needed to understand and do what we wanted to do. Uh, without a lot of work and heavy lifting and you know it was Perl at the time and which was kind of like a write-only language and then there was php which was actually fairly new at that time and i liked php it was a, it was a clean syntax but it just it wasn't customary really to run it from the command line and i was a free bsd person at the time and someone had, was posting uh i was on some um irc and, and someone and i was asking around and someone had posted that um a whole bunch of uh, new ports that just went up for a, a language called Ruby. And I went out and um, go, okay, I'll go look at that. And I think Matt had published like a three-page intro into Ruby, which was covered all the IRB and all the ways to handle uh, arrays and hashes and things like that in, in um, a real simple manner, which was completely... Uh, blue pearl away with, with the ability to handle that um, heterogeneous list with the duck typing, which I didn't know what it was called at the time, but that's what it was. And, and I was like, man, this is this is pretty cool. It's pretty powerful. And so that that 
pretty much, you know, that, that was a clear winner at the time. So we went with that. And then, you know, four or five years into Ruby, you know, we're liking it, but we're, we keep, you know, we're like, this is a great language. What could ever replace Ruby? And we're asking ourselves, you know, what are the problems with Ruby? Does it have any problems? And it was, it was pretty apparent about four or five years in that threading was an issue. And that really never got taken care of in, 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 some, in, some, in a good way. And so I, don't, I can't remember exactly how I got launched into Elixir. Uh, oh, I think, it, yes, right. I saw Dave Thomas's uh, post on it. So Dave had written a book on Elixir. Uh, you know, by the way, that's that's how I know about things. You know, that's the real answer is I just watched Dave Thomas because he, he is uh, publishing the Ruby book. Right when I got into the Ruby community, I think it was just a couple months before he published it. And about the same, I did the same thing with Elixir. Uh, it turned out that Dave's uh, book was about ready to hit the press. But I, uh, I watched Dave Thomas's nine minute video. And I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. And I needed the language at the time. I was working for a company that we needed something that was fast, and I knew Ruby wasn't going to be quite fast enough for us. And so I started looking at that. Phoenix wasn't developed yet. Phoenix was just like, I think, maybe a week old when I started looking at this uh, Elixir thing. And I knew nothing at the time about functional programming or anything like that, but I knew enough about Erlang and the roots of Elixir that it, it had a really good history. And a really good track record, so I kind of just, you know, decided I needed to latch onto this and and learn it. So that's kind of the the genesis of of me just stumbling around in the dark. I kind of said earlier that like, you know, I could see through the croft. Well, that's arrogant me. <laughs> I think the real history is I I, I kind of stumble around and and uh, pick up on what other smart people are doing, like like Dave Thomas, for example. And. Yeah, the reason I say knack is partly because I know your history in the Ruby community, and it seems to be you seem to be mirroring that coming with the Elixir community as well. Where Lone Star was, I believe it was one of the first announced, if not the first event, beaten by a week or something by one of the other regional conferences. So you managed to get one of the first, if not technically the first, regional Ruby conf, and now. Before Elixir even gets 1.0 and still a good point into, I think it was at around 0.7 or 0.8, you managed to put on a full-on Elixir conf, get that going in. So what drove you to actually build conferences around Ruby first and then take that history and apply it to Elixir this early on when it's still as young as it was? Because it was two, two years young? I think when you had the Elixir Conf, yeah. So you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm just coming to this from complete ignorance. I, I was fairly active in the IRC channel with Ruby back in the day, and I think David Black was the one with the idea and I, I about having a conference for Ruby. And I was involved with those guys online with uh, with this, but I guess I, I wasn't involved enough in the back channels, and so I don't get any credit for organizing that. I mean, I, I don't need any credit, but David Black organized the whole thing. I remember I, I worked with uh, Rich, and he brought the video camera, and I bought the high tapes. <laughs> so we, we actually recorded the very first Ruby conference on, on his camera. That was kind of humorous. But um, so, yeah, 
those guys, Chad Fowler and, and um, Rich and David, started the essentially Ruby Central. And so I, w- I watched that proceed, and then they kind of like procrastinated for at least two, almost three years about having a, a local conference, a regional conference. I'm like, man, we really need to do this. And so fi- finally, Hal Fulton helped me take action, and, and we decided to hold a, a conference. We decided we said we, we had a, what's called a Ruby lunch, and Hal kind of spearheaded every Thursday. So we decided that the month that would work best, and David Bluestein, one of the guys who attended the lunch, he kind of went with me, and uh, we, we started the, the Lone Star Ruby Conference together. And back then, you know, we're like, man, we really don't want to lose any money on this. <laughs> that was our goal, not, not to lose money, because it hurt people losing money on that, on starting conferences. But so we started the conference, and, and we were actually the first people to announce. But I think the Midwest... Ruby Conference, those guys, even though they announced after us, I think their conference what might have been before us by a couple months. Can't remember exactly, but we we ended up being pretty much the largest regional uh, Ruby Conference for quite some time. Mountain West, I think, actually probably maybe grew a little bigger and they were quite successful. But so anyway, I ran that for six years and got pretty tired of it just because I was doing it all myself. I turned it over to Lance and Lance uh, did a bang-up job. He held probably one of the biggest Lone Star Ruby conferences we've ever had, and it was it was a it was a really nice conference. But so anyway, I was kind of out of the Ruby community for well, at least for as far as conferences go. For various reasons, I was busy with work and other things. But I got into the Elixir community, and I'm doing this differential analysis. You know, I'm like, man, I don't I don't want someone else to start a Elixir conference. <laughs> And I don't want to just be doing a regional conference. I want to, I said, I'd like to be control the U.S. Elixir Conf. So I just decided to do it. I thought the community was big enough to support it. We had 99 people at that first conference. And I'm doing a differential analysis with Ruby 15 years earlier, but it's a whole different landscape. We've got different tools available to us. The communities that form online are, are different. I mean, I think it was really interesting to see all the people at the first Elixir conference meeting for the very first time. You know, Jose and Chris McCord and I think even maybe Bruce Tate, those guys had never met in person. So, you know, I've I've been involved in conferences long enough. And it's kind of like you were saying earlier, the hall track is very important in the social interaction, the actual physical face-to-face meetings are, are really, really important, even though, you know, we have all these online tools for these communities to grow, they're really solidified when you can meet in person. And I knew that uh, having a conference was important, and I, I believed in Elixir, and so I, I just kind of took that leap that, that we could make Elixir conference in the U.S. happen. And then Erlang Solutions talked to me. They were wanting to have a conference in Europe, and Francesco wanted to to partner with this and actually I've ended up partnering with them, I guess they, so I really was kind of a supporting role in, with Erlang Solutions. And we had six months later, the Elixir conference in Europe, we had about 130 people there. Uh, it was a great turnout and a lot of great people there met. And so kind of the idea that we're playing with is every six months, we're going to have a conference, one in Europe, one in the U S and we're supposed to have a conference you know, around April or May in Berlin. 
And I'd taken a poll at last year's Elixir conference about where to hold the next one at, and everyone voted Portland, but it was requested that we go back to Austin. So we're in Austin this year in October. So I am started double questioning myself, you know, do I really want to go to Portland? So I, I posted that out again, and, and I don't know yet. I don't know where we're going to go for 2016 Elixir Conference U.S., but anyway, that's a bit of the history of the conferences that are going on. Yeah, I didn't make it down to ElixirConf. I was hoping to. I wasn't quite sure if I would swing it at work since we had some Erlang, but I wasn't getting to do any Erlang. And at that point, as I kind of mentioned before, when I had Jose on, was I started out a bit dubious about Elixir, thinking it was just a Ruby on the Erlang VM. I was like, okay. But as soon as it started growing and I started talking to Jose and Bruce Tate, it started my eyes started kind of widening and saying, okay, I think I get what's going on here. And then Dave Thomas is local to the area as well. So I stumbled across him down at the one of the Erlang camps down in Austin. And he came in and gave a presentation to the Erlang user group up here. And we were like, okay, now we see this. Like, you're showing us Elixir from a perspective of someone who knows Erlang. And now we see what gets, gets provided. But there just seems to be a huge amount of energy even with that first Elixir Conf that I was watching online because it's like, I don't think I'm going to go down, but I'm curious to see what's going on and building. And the energy there just seemed ecstatic from everything I could tell. It seemed a very high energy, excitable thing. Is that something that you think it just needed the time and the place to happen? Or was there some other stuff that was going on that kind of helped charge that energy? It's a good question. So did you watch the first Elixir conference on video or did you, is that what you're saying? Well, I was watching the stuff online as people were going through about it. And then I caught a bunch of it. I was cut, catching a number of talks on the videos afterwards, but just seeing people talk about it that weekend and then online shortly after just the energy around it seemed to be a very high-energy conference with everybody excited talking about what was going on. So we had some good energy there. I still think there was a lot of everybody not really understanding what they had. And from the talks that I got this year compared to last year, I really think, at least from the community that's, that's involved, I mean, this, this thing is taking off like a rocket. I think the energy level and the, the understanding is tenfold over what it's going to be last year. I mean, I mean, Phoenix was out and everyone was excited, but no one really understood what it was. People like the Ruby-esque of a functional language. No, but, I, you know, OTP wasn't really that well understood and, and, and all these things that it could do. And the whole landscape's changing. All, all these talks on production, seeing Elixir in production, I don't think WhatsApp had come out either at the time that uh, last year's conference was out. I can't remember. But I think just the general understanding and, you know, the the knowledge level of the community has been raised quite a bit. So I think this conference is, is going to be really exciting. If I look at ticket sales compared to last year's, the ticket sales are crazy this year compared to last year. I think we're already over 200 people. I haven't done a headcount recently, but the Phoenix track, I'm going to have to shut it down. There's a, we have training for one day, and the, 
a two-track, two-day conference. Chris McCord's Advanced Phoenix track or training day is already, I think, over 60 attendees. And, you know, we could probably sell 80 or 100, but I don't think that would be good for the class. I mean, it's already getting to be what may not be manageable, but um, it's, you know, I've kind of have to, to draw that line between letting people in that want in and, and, and letting people that are there have a good experience. But now I think this year, this conference is, it, it's going to be a conference we'll be talking about for some time. So as we record this today, announcements for speakers went out or at least started going out. And I know you had previously put out some of the talk titles of things that people were suggesting what is this year's Elixir Conference kind of looking like, if you can get a feel of what people were submitting? Because you said people start to get it now. After It's been a year. People are getting what Elixir is and how it fits in to their work and just their development career in general. And how are you seeing that kind of play out, at least through the what you've seen with the conference proposals? Is there a pretty strong balance equally across people coming in from different areas of the community? Or is there the, some of the topics that are going? Can you just give a little bit of rundown about from looking at, I think I've heard you say something around 60 plus proposals submitted. What was that environment looking like just speaking from what you've seen and had to review? Yeah, so we've had over 60 proposals. And so what I did is there's so many good proposals that I've, we've had to not accept because I just run out of slots. And so what I did, I was going to open up like one day for two tracks and I ended up opening both days for two tracks. And that's really good, I think, for the speakers and good for the attendees, but I can already tell people are going to complain. And they're going to complain because I'm complaining myself because I'm looking at tracks and I've you know been working on this for days, trying to get talks that are kind of complimentary and that, you know, if you're interested in this talk, you're probably less interested in this talk and in the, in the put those side by side in the tracks. But I, I guarantee that you're going to, you're going to look at the, the tracks and you're going to go, man, I want to go to both of those. And I can't do it, but we are, we are going to be filming it. So that's going to help. So if you miss a track, you can, you can watch it on film. So we've got several talks on OTP this year, several talks on the beam. So, you know, the community's growing and they're realizing that what the beam is and how the beam works. And sometimes you need a performance to the beam. And so we're, we're getting people talking about that. We're, we've got deep dives into pattern matching. We've got CRDT, which is, you know, a pretty advanced type concept that we actually have a talk on that this year. Got a talk where we're integrating Phoenix Elm, and I'm really happy about that one actually because I think Elm's a pretty cool language as well. Ecto, you know, we got some talks on Ecto and and you know some um, embedded talks. It's kind of more than just hey, here's a cool language, and you know we're looking at people who are talking about ways they're deploying the language and ways they're using the language in their in their company and the hurdles are overcoming. And so it's, it's more beyond just, just surface things. I mean, we had some really good talks in Europe, I think that are now becoming common knowledge. Uh, one of their favorite ones that w- was, I think it was uh, the Bleacher Report, uh, where they they showed that, okay, here's our stack that we had, you know, and they listed, you know, Redis and Sidekick and whatnot. 
and they showed that all these services are like seven services they're all replaced with with elixir and so that was that was a pretty cool talk and very popular i think that kind of concept that of what an otp language is and how these elixir or learning processes work and function is getting to be pretty much common knowledge and so now we're we're moving beyond that and we're looking more into how do we get this into production in an efficient manner and what do we do for release management and then how do we fine-tune the beam and understand what's going on there so that's what we're looking at this year. so it sounds like everybody's kind of taking it up a level from at least some of the videos that i saw last year where you had chris and bruce and jose and eric and they kind of gave some of the deeper topics about elixir and then you had a couple of others that kind of said a little bit of the broader ecosystem or some other things that you may not know about but this is kind of like realizing okay now that we've started adopting this in production here's everything and here's some real lessons learned instead of us just trying to figure out how we might take advantage of this in our in our work kind of that early version of the sales pitch of here's why elixir is still important down to we bought in and yes everything that people have said is true and here's here's those stories and lessons learned and where it might be falling short and things you need to watch for but it's still worth it yeah that's a good way of putting it so there's there's much less sales pitch type talk and i'm sitting there looking at the uh, the layout right now and i really think your brain's gonna hurt after you, <laughs> you it's gonna it's very enjoyable it's gonna be very enjoyable but i think your brain's gonna hurt after you attend this conference there's just a lot of good stuff here so since you just went through a whole bunch of proposals and talks and had to call them, we've got a lot of people here that are probably messing around with functional languages on the side, may or may not be getting to do it in their jobs, or at least doing some in the jobs, but others where they're still trying to play with other languages on the side as much as they can. Do you have any kind of guidance or advice from someone who's run a conference and vetted proposals? along this of what people who think they might want to talk about something but don't necessarily feel the confidence that say well i'm i'm actually not using this in production this or even any serious toy project like any serious project on the side this is all just toy and playground is there anything that you have from a conference perspective that makes a good talk for people like that where they can feel comfortable going and thinking they have something to talk about and making pitches to whatever conference it may be that question has been asked before, and uh, I think I'm unqualified to answer that question. You know, just because I run conferences doesn't mean I know how to make a good talk. Um, I, I know that sounds ludicrous, but I sit back in awe at some of these people. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. How'd they come up with that? You know, and others, other ideas are like, yeah, that's pretty obvious, and but the way they formatted it and, and the way they approach it is just like super interesting. So, you know, I think part of the one reasons that I hold these conferences is because I probably don't have the talent to come up with all these cool talks. So I, I really don't have a lot of advice. I don't, I think for a lot of reason, I'm probably not qualified to give advice on how to, how to propose a talk. I can say though that, and I've done this before on the on uh, Ruby conference too. So I, I took we had a lot of we had a I remember one Ruby conference that I ran. I took all the proposals that didn't make the cut 
and all the proposals that did make the cut, right? And I'm looking at all the proposals that didn't make the cut, and I'm going, wow, that that would have been an awesome conference on any year. And I'm looking at the, you know, the the talks for Elixir that that didn't make the the cut this year. And and I'm like, that'd be an awesome conference. So, you know, it's really hard to say because it's it's kind of relative to who else is proposing and what's out there. We did have some talks come in that are very similar, and we kind of have to choose between one or the other. And a lot of times what happens is we'll look at the description and how they're going to approach it, and those people are going to approach it in a more engaging manner and look like they have some some knowledge or in depth in their understanding are the ones who are going to win that. So, you know, one thing I could say is make your descriptions good. Make sure that uh, you understand what you're talking about. And if you're going to err, in my opinion, I, I like to err on the side of entertainment. So I want to be informative and educational, but I don't want to put people to sleep. So I always like those talks that are going to find a fresh, entertaining way to, to cover a topic. Well, that sounds like good advice. And it's one of those things as I play with other languages and try and figure out where it fits in. It's like, it'd be nice to go to that conference. It'd be not even nicer if I could figure out a talk to speak at that conference, but it doesn't always necessarily happen in figuring out where that fits in. And some of that's intimidation and some of that's and self-doubt, but then it's also the, well, I've also seen these other people talk and I don't know that I would hold a candle to them, but that's good advice there. It's all subjective, and, and you don't know what you're, how you're going to perform until you get there. I submitted a talk to the San Diego Ruby Conference. I think that was our fourth or fifth conference on DSLs. And so had Jim Wirick. And so they, they called me, Chad Fowler called me and asked me what my talk was going to be about and blah, 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 how I was going to cover it. And I think he even told me that that Jim Weirich would had proposed a DSL as well. And I decided not to sell myself and say, yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. Jim's talk sounds pretty good. <laughs> and so, and of course, if you go back and watch that video, Jim's, Jim Weirich's talk was great. And it was, you know, it would have been 10x the talk that I could have given. So I'm glad I didn't try to force anything and say, hey, yeah, you, should, you know, send me. So, and I've always enjoyed Jim's talks. I mean, his he's had some really really good talks. So again, in some ways, I'm just I'm just not really qualified on what it takes to give a good talk because I always think there's someone better than me. But you know that may not be the case. You may be the person out there that is going to be better than the other guy. So I say if you feel like you can give a good talk and you have a desire, make a submission. That's good advice anyway because it. It's good to hear that from someone who puts on the conferences and has that experience putting on conferences saying, send us your talk, don't be intimidated. And I think that's kind of reassuring to hear. We've done a lot, and someone made this comment, and it's not that we overtly tried this, but we love giving everybody a chance. And so I don't go down the list and go, oh, there's some famous speaker that does accept this talk. I weight their talks against what they submit. And I mean, Lone Star has always been really good about getting keynote speakers that have never keynoted before. And so I haven't really had as much of that opportunity 
with Elixir because it's so it's so new, and most of the people that you know can give a keynote are quite advanced in the community. But hopefully soon, maybe even next year, we can start seeing some keynotes from people who normally don't give keynotes. It's not something that we look for. We don't look for popularity or someone with previous speaking experience. So I look through the list here. I don't see a lot of people here that are that are going to probably be really recognizable, but I think we're going to have a, a lot of good talks. On something you're a little more qualified to speak about, I'm sure, is organizing conferences or just even events in general. Because you've also put together a Phoenix training and kind of helped organize that and at least got that stuff together. Do you have any pieces of advice for people coming through and saying, well, there's nothing really in my area. Could I put something on even small and what kind of advice or things they might want to know about or helpful tips to put something on, whether it doesn't even have to be a big conference, but just say, here's something small you want to put on a little thing and make it a little bigger than a user group and attract people. Do you have any kind of advice for first time organizers at that level or warnings of what they might be getting into? Well, the first thing they need to decide is what the scope of their event is going to be and they need to decide i always approach it first from an economic standpoint so if it's going to be a free event like our little austin elixir meetup you know one of the first things we need to secure is people who are willing to donate space and you know we pay for the meetup membership out of our pocket so, you know, it's a small expense, something that I'm willing to do, and it's, it's not a big deal. But if you're going to have a pay event, you know, like a like Phoenix training or, or the Elixir Mastery guys, um, you know, you need to look, first look at it from a, from the finances perspective and make sure that you, you know, decide what your break-even point is and set your price accordingly such that you can walk away from it with a good experience and a good feeling about it and that you're not trying to make payments on that for the next five years. You know, Chad Fowler put out a little simple list on how to run a conference. This was years ago, and it may or may not be still out on the web there, but I mean, it was such a simple list, and that's actually what I used to, to create our first Lone Star Ruby conference. And that was so helpful. It just covered all the bases, and now there's actually a book on how to run these regional conferences that's been written, but I always try to look at it from my perspective of, can I afford it? Can we get enough people there to make this worthwhile? And then I focus on, you know, the next thing you have to focus on content. How are you going to get the content generated? Who's going to generate that? And then what's the experience of the people that are going to be there? Are they going to have comfortable surroundings? Is it going to be a, a good environment where the projector screen is clear and, they, and everybody can see and there's going to be plenty of food? So that's the kind of things that, that I'm looking at is I want them, while they're there, to have a really positive experience. I don't want, you know, the atmosphere to be too hot or too cold. I don't want the food to be lousy. And I, I want them walking away thinking that, you know, that if there was a pay event that they got their money's worth. And if it's not a pay event, that they met some good people and had a good time and, and learned something good. Sounds like great advice. And I'll try and find that post or art list from Chad Fowler about putting together a conference and including the show notes. So just going back and let's go, I'd like to go a little deeper into the Phoenix training. I saw it come through, I saw it announced. I saw Chris McCord's 
little one or two minute promotional video of the training and I just heard you and him talk about it on the Elixir Fountain podcast by Johnny Wynn talking about some of that stuff. But do you want to kind of go in and give your give a rundown of what that Phoenix training was and how it went? Sure. So Chris gave a little training session, I think it was about two or three hours at, at Rails Conference. I think that was one of his first ones. And then in ElixirConf Europe, we had a day of, of training where we built a little chat app and I think we did some push and a pull on messages from Twitter in that app. And so we were talking, you know, okay, so this is, WebSockets is pretty cool. People are figuring this out. We need some good training to boot people up. And but what can we do? And so I was thinking, why don't we make a little spreadsheet, you know, have a whole spreadsheet engine that could be an OTP application. And then we could just, you know, basically harness that with Phoenix and, you know, could even have a little chat window inside of a spreadsheet and, you know, people could be completing sales, kind of like Google Docs, right? And so Chris gave that some thought and he came up with a different idea with making a Google Doc. And we used this uh, Quill library, which is a JavaScript library, which is a WYSIWYG editor. And it just so happens that Quill is written very well and used to dance. So in about 100 lines of code, he was able to integrate basically Google Docs <laughs> and using Quill in Elixir. So we had a, a chat engine on the side. And then we had a multi-user collaborative editing environment. And then we came up with the ideas. Well, hey, let's, you know, I said, well, let's make this like Mathematica, right? So we can use Wolfram Alpha and we'll do, you know, you, you click on something and you, you hit control enter and it asks Wolfram Alpha for the answer. And we did various things where you could either get a text response or get a graphical response. And so he, he probably did that. Probably took him a day to hook all that up. And the guy said he's such a genius. But we had we had so much fun with that app. I mean, you've got I don't know if you remember Google Wave in that presentation uh, at Google's conference. I guess those guys were just too early for their time. But if you would ask me three months ago, hey Jim, can you write a can you write a Google Docs app? And if so, how would you do it? I would I have no clue. And so essentially we wrote a Google Docs app, but not only that, we've got it where you can customize it. So it's like an intelligent application. I don't know if you, that used to be a big thing 20, 30 years ago, you would create an intelligent app that uh, integrated a lot of smarts, but this one's collaborative. So not only is it intelligent, you know, we can pull stuff from Wolfram Alpha, we can, it's collaborative. And so I can connect it with other people. And so that concept, we wanted to get across that, you know, these are blocking calls that in Rails you would have a hard time dealing with, right? But it's not a problem with the processes in Elixir. It can take as long as it wants. And when that data is ready, it just inserts it into the, the document. And so now, I mean, you're limited only by your imagination in what you can do with this. So you could take any any service out there, it doesn't matter. It could be a phone service. It could be GPS coordinates. It could be reverse lookup on people's car history or whatever. It doesn't matter. And integrate that with a collaborative environment. And you've pretty much got a killer app that some business or some company probably needs today. And we teach that in that class. We give you all the tools. And it's really interesting. You may not know 
before you go in that class, well, where would I start? How would I do this? But we give you all the interface points, all the hooks, and all the all the relevant architecture that once you get into that space, oh, okay, here's a service. Just swap out that service for the service that I want. And here's the way the channels work. Okay, okay, all I need to do is just, you know, add a authentication to this this part of the channel and and I'm good to go with the real app. So, I mean, you kind of think, well, is this, is this just a toy? And kind of think, can you write anything real in a couple of days? Well, it's not necessarily ready for production, but it's not a toy either. In two days, you can have a framework that you can build on and you can pretty much build any kind of collaborative, intelligent application that you can imagine that, you know, I don't know many other platforms that you could do this on. So that's kind of what we wanted to do. And, you know, Chris more than met my expectations on that. And we have really good feedback from the class. It, it's pretty exciting. And was that a one-day course, a two-day course? What was that time period over? Yeah, so what we do is a two-day course. We do six hours of instruction per day, three in the morning, three in the afternoon, get you plenty of food and plenty of breaks. But it's a lot of instruction. We try not to wear you down too much. But we also had a private GitHub repository that people get access to that and they keep access to that. So 12 hours total, it sounds like you were able to knock out a bunch. And just listening to Elixir Fountain, whatever Johnny Wynn was talking to you all about it, it sounded like there was still a high energy enough that it was like we were able to be productive, but we still had time to go off and play and tweak and experiment with the stuff as well, where it wasn't just hands-on, here's what we're building, we're typing everything all day or sitting and lecturing. Like It sounded pretty interactive as well, where people were pulling stuff back and forth and watching that collaboration happen as they were building the app as well. Yeah, it can always be better, and we're always trying to improve that. We felt a little rushed in Europe. It took the full six hours. We actually finished the whole app the first day with like an hour to spare and didn't feel rushed at all. And so we're getting better at presenting presenting the information. And so we were able to do a lot of exploratory things and understand how OTP apps fit in on day two. And then we were able to add our own modifications to the app. So make sure people really understood kind of how the pieces fit together. So yeah, we, as I look back on it, it was, it was amazing. Essentially, we got that whole app, got that whole app done in five hours on the first day. That's really impressive from some of the other training stuff that I've seen or just watched. And it sounds like it's a testament not only to Elixir and the Beam, but also Chris's ability to come up with something and the Phoenix framework in general. And then his talents of coming up with a problem that you can actually do and collaborate and structure it so that people are actually getting a good picture of it instead of thinking, okay, this is just a web framework, but I don't really understand how the pieces work other than just doing rote typing. And if I have to go back, I hope I took good notes on understanding what this piece was. Uh, Chris has been thinking about this kind of application for quite some time. And he's, as he said, he's been trying to do this in Rails for, for years, some years now. And actually, you know, pretty much implemented a solution in Rails so in other words, he's been down the action cable path and, and realized it wasn't going to scale. And so that's why he started looking around. And then I don't think much, but you got the WebSocket API, which is pretty standard API, but you still have to write a JavaScript client to interact with, with a server that, uh, that talks WebSockets. 
Chris wrote all that JavaScript code for the client. So he wrote the WebSocket handler that, that's in Phoenix. So that's part of what makes this so easy is that he's he's written that JavaScript client. And so it's you're talking to the guy who wrote Phoenix and he wrote the WebSocket client. So he really knows his stuff. Yeah, I did a little two-day sharpen the saw with Elixir at work just because they said, okay, do a little project demo what you've learned after that and i was really impressed with the websocket capability because i followed along his chat app that he's got on the phoenix site and that was really pretty straightforward and then it was the ability of like okay now how can i extend this and play with it for the second day after not doing much it was like i was really impressed with how i was able to extend it and add new chat rooms and other events and things like that with relative ease and not having to do much and handle much overhead on the Phoenix side and just plug in the events essentially and create maybe a couple new channels that we match on. But I was really impressed with the elegance that he had put in. And that was one of the things I was, again, having done Ruby and messed with Rails and having worked in Erlang was, I was scared that Dave Thomas's little ask at the end of the last Elixir Conf might not be followed where it's don't just write another Rails here. But it looks like Chris has actually taken up that challenge and made something that might look like Rails if for no other reason than the syntax of Elixir is close to Ruby. But it's nice to see that, and especially hearing from you, that the push for OTP processes and everything else is being thought of, is being carefully delivered and trying to be communicated to people coming in. Right. I never got into Rails. It was changing too much for me. I never wrote, I wrote probably, I don't know, less than 10 Rails apps. And it didn't really matter if I wrote one Rails app and then I wrote another Rails app a year later or literally a day later. It never worked because it had changed. I remember I wrote one Rails app and I'm like, okay, oh, use this on day two. And no, it already broke. So I really didn't like that. And at the time, it was like 13 different DSLs with different syntax or whatever you want to call it, that there was no consistency. And so I was a little bit hesitant of Phoenix because people kept comparing it to Rails. It's actually nothing like Rails. It's actually... There is a routing layer which helps out, but it's it's probably more like a, it could be more like a Sinatra. But there's plug, and plug is really just a way to handle these requests in response. It's just functions that are essentially just chained. And in one sense, Phoenix is just kind of a wrapper with convenience functions around plug. And I heard someone saying that you don't really want to think of plug like rack. I mean, they are kind of similar, but Plug's not really a middleware like Rack is because Plug is essentially just a series of function calls. It's kind of hard to describe, but essentially you have, you know, if you think of your OTP application, which is just process just, just hanging out on the CPU, Phoenix is really just another OTP application that's hanging out on the CPU. And it's got Cowboy as a process that it's using to listen. And Phoenix essentially has what's called an endpoint, which is going to basically take those requests coming from Cowboy, and it's going to send them to that endpoint. And then that endpoint is going to do whatever you want it to do with it. And it can call your other OTP applications, or it'll call Plug to essentially drill down and handle the request. 
So it's not like rails. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a real good mindset on how people are thinking about what rails is, but if you, you're trying to think that rails is your app and rails is kind of heavy because it's got all these features. Phoenix is not that Phoenix is not your app and Phoenix is not heavy. It's more of a, just a OTP application with an endpoint that's kind of like directing requests. You kind of use it as a as a layer to take your request. You send your request off to, you know, if you need a service that you've written or a remote service like we did with Wolfram Alpha, and then it collects that response and then sends it back to the user, to the client. Looking at it and having messed with it, other things around the Erlang stuff with previous jobs for a little bit, was it looked like it was pretty elegant and easily plugged into the rest of the OTP environment, which is something I I applaud Jose and everyone else for, is making it a language that actually embraces the VM it's running on, like Clojure or F-Sharp that run on different virtual machines. And I've been impressed with the care that Jose himself has taken and then a lot of the other people in the community from what I've seen with Eric Meadows Johnson and Chris McCord taking that care and stewardship as well. Yeah, if you if you think about it, there's really no other way to write it and to be accepted by the community. I hope I haven't done too poor of a job of explaining, but yeah, these, these guys are all really smart. And just because Erling's been around for, what, 30 years and controls 60% of the world's phone systems doesn't mean that you can't come in and, and understand what's going on and, and utilize that. And, you know, that's what these guys have done. In a very short amount of time, they've come in, they understand what's going on. And Chris has done a couple of presentations where he really draws the parallels. And so he really understands. So you've got, you know, the old phone network where you had the POTS lines and you have the switches, phone switches, and essentially Erlang was used to control all that network. And he's got this slide showing the phones and the switches. And then he just basically just changes the labels. The diagram stays the same, just changes the labels. So now instead of this phones and switches, you've got a computer or a smartphone and you got servers. And so all that theory and all that battle-tested architecture that's been reliably providing the, the world's phone systems we're doing the exact same thing. We're just calling the endpoints different things. We're kind of getting towards the end, but I want to make sure we give wrap up because I don't want to take a huge amount of your time tonight and take up too much more, but I want to give you a chance to cover anything we didn't miss. Is there anything about ElixirConf coming up that you want to make sure people know about or the future ElixirConf you you want to put on their radar? Or is there anything else in general that you want to know whether or not it's more Phoenix training or where people can find out what's going on? I know for a while you also had some videos on Vimeo as well. So is there anything else we didn't cover that you want to make sure we talk about? Uh, just the Elixir conference on October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The first day, October 1st, is a training, which is optional. But there's some really good training courses. I would highly recommend people to look into that and go to that. And it looks like it's going to be a really good conference. We've got 25, 26 speakers, not counting their keynotes. And we're going to have a panel. So I think it's going to be just a ton of content and a great conference to be at. So that's at lixerconf.com. And I would recommend people to 
get their tickets early before it, it potentially sells out. So is there anything else that you want to make mention to? Any other announcements you want to promote or anything else that's going on, at least from your end, aside from ElixirConf? Although I, I'm sure at this point it's taking up most of your time and mental energy. Well, we, we put a, a little comment box essentially on the, the Phoenix training class. And so those who couldn't make it, they were able to propose cities and times of when they would like to have a training class. And that's still open, by the way, at training.phoenixframework.org. And that's still open for you to post. But you know, we have a lot of people, I think New York and Boston area, we had a, a high number of people. We had people in Japan and London, several in London and Germany. So we would like to continue that training as, if that's valuable for people. So if you want to get that training, I would encourage you to go to the website and make a request on where to have it. So that's one thing. You know, Elixir Conference has pretty much consumed my time, and the training is something we want to build to provide the people, and that's kind of an organizational effort to find out who and when to make that worth everybody's time. But I don't know. There's, as far as I can think of, I'm not really much into self-promotion, or I don't know what else I would promote. Well, I'll make sure to just let everybody know that you do have a series of videos out on Vimeo for Elixir and kind of getting started and getting familiar with it. So those are worth checking out if someone's interested in Elixir. And with that, I guess, where can people find you and follow what's going on with you or just keep in touch outside of anything in particular? So my Twitter handle is Jim Freeze and I'm Freeze on GitHub. And so that's, you know, you can get hold of me that way. I hope to be providing some kind of uh, Phoenix content here near the end of the year. Chris and I are trying to figure out how to consolidate some of this training so it's available to people who aren't able to attend. And so we want to we want to be able to package this up. So we're thinking about kind of a workbook series and maybe condense it down into five hours of video that people can um, get access to. Because there's a lot of great concepts here, and we want people to be able to understand it. We're working hard on that, but right now we're consumed with other things like getting Phoenix 1.0 out and getting Elixir Conference out. Well, I'll make sure to include those links in the show notes as well. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Jim, for giving your time this evening to talk to me about ElixirConf and what you've seen with Elixir coming up. Sure, it's been a great pleasure uh, visiting with you. It's been great talking to you tonight. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.